0: Good morning, it is great to see you here this morning, we're thankful as always for your presence, certainly good to be back, PTP was wonderful, if you haven't had an opportunity to go, you should consider it, I think if you went one time, it would sell itself. Uh, They're going to do another one in Branson, Missouri next year, which is a little closer to us, and so maybe there's an opportunity, but uh, it's a fantastic event, very thankful for it and thankful to be back. John chapter 8, if you have your Bibles this morning, or maybe I should just say the book of John, because we'll walk through the book of John to get to chapter 8 here momentarily. We'll begin at the end of the book, or nearly the end, where John tells us his purpose in writing, chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. John said, "...truly many other things did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may have life." That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life through his name. God wants us to believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He wants us to believe that the one who came is God with us. And this entire book is dedicated to that end. And by reading this book, hopefully those things that were specifically chosen, written by the Holy Spirit, inspired by him for John to write, would lead us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What that would do is provide life for us, both in the here and now, and then ultimately in eternal life later with him. And so as you're reading through this book, that is the emphasis and the aim, and you can hear Jesus' emphasis to that end that he might then convince those who hear that he is the Christ. He claims it on more than one occasion. He says it, and he proves it. He demonstrates it. And he wants us to train our hearts, our spirits, to hear his teaching and understand it, and then ultimately allow it to change us internally. He wanted to open their eyes, and so his teaching was designed to that end. But they missed it. Uh, The plea is that you don't miss it. They missed it because of their physical focus. They just could not get past the material to see the spiritual. And they would misunderstand his words. They would misconstrue his teachings and sometimes twist them and pervert them. But ultimately, they would just miss what the Lord was saying. His point ultimately is there's life beyond this life. There's meaning beyond this life. Thy spirits will live beyond this world and that Christ is God in the flesh, the one who is here to help us with that. And so, early in the book, the chapters open with that emphasis. In fact, the book opens that way. That which was, or in the beginning rather, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, First John chapter 1, the first three verses. Verse 14 says, and the Word was made flesh. And so that really is the emphasis of the book and the Bible, that God is with us, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And so as Jesus begins to teach, He talks about that, and He talks about those things. In John chapter 2, I say a walk up to chapter 8 because it begins back here. You can see how it develops through the book. But in John chapter 2, verses 17 to 21, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they respond to that statement in verse 40, uh, verse number 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it. The Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And so Jesus is talking about not the physical structure. That's where their focus is. This temple took 46 years to build, and you just said, destroy it, and in three days I'll raise it. But if you'll notice there in verse 21, the Bible will explain he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this scripture, and they believed. And it's kind of like that all the way through the book. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus will come to Jesus, and he will say, among other things, that, Rabbi, we know, verse number 2, you have come from God. We know that because no one else can do the signs which you're doing unless God is with them. To that, Jesus responded— Truly, truly, I say it unto you, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus responds, much like chapter 2 about the temple, Nicodemus said in it, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born you can see Jesus is talking about the new birth. In fact, he says it again in verse 5, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. Later in this conversation, he would say to Nicodemus, are you not a teacher in Israel? How do you not know these things? In chapter 4, as you're very well familiar with, he'll meet the woman who is there at the well, and she's there to get water. And Jesus asked her for a drink, and so she says, how are you a Jew? A man, who is a Jew, asking me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink. How are you doing that? You know the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritan. To which Jesus responded, and it must have seemed strange to her. He said, if you had known the gift of God and who it was that asked you, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. To which she said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep." How are you then saying you have water? I'm the one with the vessel to draw water, and here you are offering me water. You don't have anything to drink. She's thinking about the physical water in the well. He's talking about his word, and it continued on like this. Chapter 5, there are two resurrections spoken about. The one resurrection that ultimately the end of the world where all who are in the grave will come forth, but then the resurrection that's right now, that those who will hear the voice of God— that is, those in sins, can be brought back to life. They can be resurrected, born again, to use the language of John chapter 3, made alive again, resurrected. That can happen right now, Jesus says. In John chapter 6, there's discussion about the bread. Not coincidentally, he had fed the 5,000, and so it's on their minds. But then they say to Jesus, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And Jesus says, your fathers didn't eat manna. They didn't eat the bread from heaven. He says, Moses, in verse 32, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven, the bread of God is He who comes down out of heaven. He's the one who gives life. They say to that then, Lord, evermore give us that bread and we'll never hunger again. Again, physically thinking about bread, if you'll give us that bread, we'll never hunger again. The woman at the well, if you give me that water, I'll never thirst again. But it's not physical water. It's not physical bread. In fact, Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That continues all the way to the end of John chapter 6. And as a result of his teaching, many of his disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. To which he responded by asking Peter and the other apostles, will you also go away? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. When we get to chapter 7, the Bible tells us there's a division about Jesus, who he is. Is he the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ? Is he divine in his nature, or is he not? And so, in verse number 40 of chapter 7, the Bible says, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. Verse 43 says, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. The identity of Jesus is the issue. Friends, it remains the issue. Even to this very hour, there is a division among mankind. There are those who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, divine in his nature. And then there are those who do. And there's a division among the people. Christ is on the earth at the time of uh, when he is saying these words, and he actually is saying, I am the divine Son of God. In fact, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, well, he just says it. He doesn't say, I am the divine Son of God. What he says is, I am the light of the world. It's because of that phrase, I am. You see, that harkens back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 14. When Moses is being told to return to Egypt and to let God's people go, deliver them from Pharaoh. And when Moses asks God, who shall I say sent me? What's your name? What shall I tell them? God says, I am that I am. Jesus takes that language and applies it to himself. And that's his point, that the one speaking to you is the I am, that I am self-existent, that I have no beginning and no end that I am the Alpha and the Omega. In fact, that's how John opens the book. In the beginning was the Word, not from the beginning, not near the beginning, but in the beginning. He was actually in existence before the beginning, and that's his point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, the life was the light of men. And the light shines upon every man who enters into the world. That's Jesus' point when he says, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I am. In fact, he said it throughout the book. He said it on more than one occasion. On a couple of occasions, the Jews understood it, and they wanted to kill him. John chapter 5, verse 17 and verse number 18. Jesus said, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. The Bible says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to stone him or to kill him, because... He had not only broken the Sabbath, but he said God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood that. Later in John chapter 10, verse 30 and 31, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Again, same reaction from the Jews. Jesus asked them, I've done one good work. Why do you stone me? Why do you seek to stone me? They said, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you're a man and you're saying God is your father. You keep making yourself equal with God. That is exactly what he's doing. They understood it. They just didn't believe it. Jesus is saying, I am, I am the light of the world every physical benefit you can think of for light jesus says i am that for your soul light enables things to grow light warms us from the cold light takes away the darkness it illuminates our path it helps us to find things it comforts us and puts us at ease it heals and it gives life jesus says i am the light of the world. Several things in Scripture are referred to as light. Among them is God. John chapter 1 or 1 John 1 and verse number 5. The Bible says God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Scripture is referred to as light. The psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm one nineteen one o five. 105. Saints, disciples of the Lord— they are light. Matthew 5, 13 to 16, let your light so shine before men. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world, and Jesus is the light. And here in John chapter 8, if you have your Bible, we want to notice these first 11 verses. These first 11 verses point out to us that Christ is the light of our hearts. Jesus is the light of man's hearts. And what that means is the secrets of man's hearts and the needs of man's hearts are open and bare before Jesus, and Jesus alone can satisfy, men and fix them. Let's notice some things relative to these first 11 ch- verses, and then we'll make some uh, application to us. Chapter 8, verse number 1 and verse number 2, the Bible says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives… Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. It is a constant thing said about our Savior that, generally speaking, if you wanted to find him, he was somewhere teaching the people, that he was with the people, among the people, cared for the people, and what he did very often was taught the people. Bible tells us it's early in the morning. Crowds have gathered. Jesus is teaching the people. At that same time, or in that same moment, verse number three tells us, the scribes and the Pharisees, now if you are wondering, they are among the individuals who refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They have been antagonistic about that. They will continue to be antagonistic. They have spoken against it, denounced it, and rejected it, and refused it. In fact, we didn't read it, but if you were to read chapter 7 from about verse 44 to the end of the chapter, they are the ones again saying, you should have taken him. We sent you to take him. And then when they didn't, they say, has any of the Pharisees believed? For them, that's the end of it. If we don't believe it, you shouldn't believe it. If we don't believe it, it must not be true. Well, verse number three of chapter eight tells us it's them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was taken, was being caught in adultery in the very act. They then say, now, in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? It's hard to imagine maybe people's worst day of their life. I don't imagine this could have been a good day for the woman. I don't imagine it could have been a, a, a day that she would have relished or cherished that somebody or bodies would take her in the very act of adultery and bring her publicly into the temple of all things and maybe pulling on her, maybe dragging her forcefully, thrusting her into the presence of Jesus, seemingly with no concern whatsoever for her. And they say to him, effectively, we're here because we're concerned about the law. And if they were so concerned about the law, why didn't they just do what the law says? You know, in verse number four, they say, she was caught in the very act of adultery. And then they say, Moses said. Moses commanded to stone her. So, question, why don't you just stone her? They're not wrong. That is what the law said. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10, the Bible says, And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife... Even that man that committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulterer shall surely be put to death. Well if the law says it, what difference does it make what Jesus says? You don't believe him anyway. Why bother him with this if you already know what the law says? The problem is they don't want to obey the law. Their hearts are not right. In fact, you can see that in verse number 6 and verse number 7, it seems very clear. The Bible says they were saying this, testing him. Well, why were they testing him? It it wasn't a test in the sense that they wanted to know if he knew what the law says. No, because the next phrase says, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Our Lord knows that, and so he seeks to ignore them. Verse number six says, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And he would have left it alone and moved on. And they could have moved on. But no, verse number 7 says, but when they persisted in asking him, they persisted in asking him. The Bible says he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is saying, then do what the law says. Sometimes people read this and they say, well, Jesus said, whoever is without sin, then you throw the stone. And what happens next is they, he went back and stooped on the ground and they left out one by one, indicating that nobody's without sin. And so, some people then conclude, well, nobody can judge because nobody's without sin. And they say, that's what Jesus is saying. He is without sin. Let him cast the first stone. Since nobody cast the stone… Then everybody, no one can judge. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, please don't miss the last phrase. Let him be the first to throw the stone. The law of Moses didn't simply say, if a man commits adultery with a woman, there to be stoned. It said that. It said more than that. In fact, with regards to witnessing against people to that end or any other, it said this in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the false witness be a false witness and had testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put away evil from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more such an evil thing. Well, why did they drop the stones one by one? Jesus is not saying nobody can judge. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look back at John chapter 7. You don't even have to go far. I know we usually go to Matthew 7, 1 to 5, but right here, one chapter earlier in verse 24, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgments. We're supposed to judge, so that's not what this is about. What is this about? This is about verse 6. They were saying this, testing him so they might have grounds to accuse him. Here is the point. Jesus knew their heart, and their hearts weren't right. You see, if they stoned this woman, and then diligent inquisition is found out that they conspired this plan, and they were disingenuous and false, if they conspired this plan then they themselves would be stoned. Now, what might be a key giveaway that they concocted this plan to test him? There is no man. The woman wasn't caught in the act of adultery by herself. Leviticus 20.10 said, Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be stoned. They don't have a man present, which means they really are doing exactly what verse 6 says. They are lying and conspiring to trick Jesus. And as a result of that, when given the option to go ahead and stone her then, better sense prevailed because after diligent inquisition is made and we're found out, we will be stoned. What are some lessons we can learn? And then four points of application. First, the lesson is this. Christ is divine. Only God can read hearts. You know, Jesus knew this plan. He tried to ignore it. He just kept writing on the ground, but they persisted. First Samuel 16:7, with reference to God, the Bible says, Look not on his appearance, for I have rejected him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. Who is this in their midst? It's God with us. That's the point. He knew the plan. How did he know? He wasn't with us when he conspired. He's divine in his nature. That's the lesson. He knows what's in man. That's what he wrote. John wrote in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. But it also says Christ is patient even with the wicked stooped down and wrote on the ground. He would have let it go. They would have let her go. They would have had nothing to say, but they persisted. And so, even with them, he's patient. Another lesson is this. Every human heart is revealed to Jesus. The Hebrew writer says, all things are open and naked before him with whom we have to do. But it's also true that Christ forgives sins, but he doesn't want us to continue in sin You can see that with the woman at the end of the chapter. Now, four points of application to us. Number one, Christ knows your heart. You know, our hearts are a great blessing from God because they are allowed to be secret from men. And thank God that men can't read hearts. Thank God we can't read one another's hearts. We have trouble enough with the words. Thankfully, we can't read the hearts. But Christ knows your heart. And Christ knows what your heart needs. And there are at least these four things. Number one, your heart needs knowledge. It's our ignorance, their ignorance in this case, that leads to bad decisions. Who among them thought it was a good idea to find someone, if it be true, in the very act of adultery, early in the morning, bring a woman, if she was in sin, as somebody pointed out to me this morning, into the temple? And that publicly. Who thought that was a good idea? Can't imagine the woman came lightly and easily. Can't imagine there was any thought or concern for her one way or the other. But that's what happens in our ignorance. When we don't have the knowledge of God, we can think terrible things are a good idea. In fact, with such a heart, it can seem like such a good idea. Read Proverbs chapter 1 and listen to his father say, Son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say to you, come, throw in your lot with us, come join us, and what are we going to do? Let's rob and commit murder. Who thinks this is a good idea? Somebody. Somebody sits around and comes up with that as the course of action for the day. Jesus knows what we need. We need knowledge. Our ignorance leads to bad motives. Why would one think that tricking Jesus would bless their lives? Why would one think that putting their own life at risk to trick Jesus would be a good idea? Jesus knew what was in them. On more than one occasion, Jesus would say to men, why reason you in your heart? Must have been surprising to have a thought in your mind and hear Jesus say, now why are you thinking that? How does he know? He knows what is in man because he made man. In fact, by his knowledge, he gave them the opportunity to turn around. If they stoned this woman under false pretense, they themselves would be put to death. Jesus saved them from themselves. You know the one piece of knowledge they lacked most that they needed most was the very point of John's book, the very point of Jesus' life, The one piece of knowledge they needed to know most was that the one they were talking to was divine. If only they knew who he was, they'd have never concocted this plan. If only they knew he made them, they would have never thought they could trick him and deceive him. If only they knew he is God with us. Jesus knows our hearts. The very thing he kept teaching them, telling them, showing them is the very thing they refused to know and it would have saved them. You start to look at your heart, and you start to consider it without Jesus. What kind of heart would they teach their children to have? What kind of parents would these people be when they went home? What kind of friends would they encourage and things they encourage their friends to do? In fact, you can see evidence of what they're thinking and how they're behaving. How about their relationship with God? How would it be? How would it be that you could reference God come into his temple, you could bring someone, quote, in the act, you could bring her to Jesus, violate the law, and under pretense, break the law, and then reference God at the same time. How would it affect your own heart and your own soul? How would it affect your family and the way you treat yourself and your fellow man? By exposing their scheme and bringing them face to face with their scheme, he saved them from themselves. And friends, he'll do the same for you. Jeremiah said it best, maybe in Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, when he said, Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not within himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. But Jesus will say, I'll light your path. I'm the light of the world. Number two, Christ knows your heart needs to be forgiven. The woman who was doing this wrong, she was not alone in the wrong she was doing. In fact, Jesus asked her, where are these your accusers? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. To which Jesus says, well, then I don't condemn you either. Now, you shouldn't read that and understand Jesus condoning her wrongdoing. He's not. What he's saying is, I'm not going to put you to death either. I'm not going to condemn you either then. But what he says to her at the end is, go and sin no more. Well, if he says sin no more, the implication is she's been sinning. Jesus says don't go do that anymore. Jesus is able and willing to forgive sins. He's willing to forgive yours as well. He knows your heart, and your heart needs forgiveness. Jesus knows your thoughts and your intentions. He's willing to forgive you the sins you have in your heart and in your mind the lust the things that you never actually carry out but those things that are wickedly devised and those schemes that no one else is aware of jesus is willing to forgive those he's also willing to forgive the very things you do that maybe you don't appreciate he knew when nobody else knew jesus knew god loved and christ came to forgive that's really the emphasis of scripture From the time that man sins in the garden, God begins to unfurl his plan, roll out, if you will, the purposes and plans that he had before he made man that culminate in forgiveness. In this very book, John 3, verse number 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's God interested in? You having life, not perishing. What did he do? He gave Jesus so we wouldn't perish. Well, what did Jesus do? The next day John sees Jesus. That's John 1:29. The next day John sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. If you'll read your Bible, it will be very clear to you very quickly what we do with lambs in Scripture. They are sacrificed. Blood is shed. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus knows your hearts, and your heart needs rest from carrying around the heavy burden of sin, and he's willing to forgive you. And so he invites, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Why do you need rest unto your souls? Because of the third thing Jesus knows your heart needs. It needs to be calmed and comforted. Because sin agitates the heart and troubles the mind. That's what sin does. You remember the people who brought this woman? Try to imagine them, if you will, for just a moment. What would have happened had they carried through with the plan? What would have happened had they gotten a hole dug and threw her in it and then began to hurl rocks and stones at her until she died? Maybe they get away with it. But can you imagine what the next several days thereafter would have been like, weeks, months, years, if you knew you had deceived? If you knew you had concocted a plan? If you knew you had helped murder this woman under false pretense? What does your mind do to you after that? Did the woman have a family? Did she have a husband? Were there any children involved? Can hey, you imagine your mind would have been at ease? You imagine your mind would have been at rest? You imagine it would have been at peace? It wouldn't have. No, sin hurts and haunts long after it's committed, even if we get away with it. And the reasons are so many. Among them is when we sin, we act selfishly. And generally, it's to people who've been good to us. We harm ourselves when we sin. And we have to do something with God. You see, it's difficult to know God and to try to walk in the light and live for Him and then to go out and commit sin like this. It's difficult to do that because God doesn't disappear from your mind. And all you're traveling to commit the sin, you got to do something with Him. And so, maybe you try to suspend your thoughts. Maybe you try to avoid his gaze. After all, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. Hard to get away from that, but somehow you try. Maybe you justify yourselves. That seems to be the go-to for many of us. I deserve this. I don't deserve what I'm getting. I should get better than this. I'm owed something more. They treat me this way. I'm always doing this. Maybe that's the way. Sometimes it's just outright rejection. I know it, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is why it causes harm. It hurts your conscience. You're talking to yourself on the journey. You're talking to yourself about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And generally speaking, you're trying to talk yourself out of it. You know you shouldn't do that. I'm doing it. Well, you know that's wrong. I don't care. You're having a talk. You know whose conscience you're going to hurt. You're not going to be done talking to yourself when you do this. You're going to hurt the people you love. You're going to hurt other people that's involved. Even if you get back at somebody, it's going to hurt you. Friends, there are many examples of this in the Bible. This is exactly the way sin hurts. This is the way it works. In Psalm 51, verse 1, down to verse number 3, David is pleading for God to wash him and purge him and cleanse him from his iniquity and transgression and sin. And David says with reference to his sin, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Most everybody I know believes Psalm 51 was written after the sin with David and Bathsheba. If that's true, then friends, it took nearly a year for the sin to be exposed. The child is born. The child is alive and outside of the womb, nine months at the very least has happened. Nathan doesn't even come until then. I don't know how long David has gone with this thing, but he's not talking about that. No, he's past that. God has spared your life. You're not going to die. You will lose sons and that happens. But David is writing this psalm sometime after that and I don't know, maybe years after that. But whenever he writes it, he uses the present tense for his problems. He says, I acknowledge my transgression. Well, that transgression I acknowledge, but the truth is he'd already said I've sinned. He said that to Nathan, I've sinned. Now he writes, I acknowledge my transgression. Where's your sin, David? My sin is ever before me. Every time David looked in the mirror, he saw David. Every time David walked through the house, he remembered. Every day, every day. It's right there in front. That's what sin does to the mind. It won't let you go. It won't turn you loose. It'll stay with you because you did it. Peter, the Bible says, he went out and wept bitterly. But it says that right after he looked in the eyes of the Lord. I have tried and tried and tried to imagine that. I have tried it. almost moves me to tears to think about it. Peter says, I'll never deny it. And at some point… The Lord turned, and Peter turned, and their eyes met right after the cock crew, and right after he said, I don't know the man, with some cursing and swearing, and the Bible says Peter went out and wept bitterly. Years after they sent Joseph down to Egypt, his brothers came, and in Genesis 42, 22 to 23, when they're questioned, they turn almost sounds like in a group huddle and say, I knew it. God is finally paying us back. I knew this was going to happen. Didn't I tell you don't hurt the child? Joseph is not in prison now. Joseph spent two years in prison. Joseph is now standing before Pharaoh. He's 30 years old when he did that. He came at 17. Those boys come back as if it were yesterday, and they say, didn't I tell you we heard his cries." We heard him crying out to us, I told you, and now God is—where is their sin ever before? What's the problem in your life, friends? That's what sin does. It won't turn you loose, it won't let you alone, it will keep playing. You know what you did. Long after his conversion, Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Long after his conversion, Paul says, and last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due season. Paul still talks about his past in the present. That's what sin does. Without Jesus, there is no way around this. Without Jesus, there is no escape from this. Now what you can do is try to quiet it down. You can try to numb it. You can try to to drink it into silence. You can try to drug it into another state. You can try to do anything you want to, to quiet it down, but it won't. Sin agitates constantly. The conscience is wound, the shame is felt, the guilt is real. You want it to stop, but the truth is you don't have a solution unless you come to Jesus. Jesus said to this woman, go and sin no more. Can you imagine how she left this encounter with Jesus? She was not put to death. She was not condemned. She was given mercy. Here is the blessing. When forgiveness is received, comfort is enjoyed, and peace is provided. How does the mind get quiet? It gets forgiven. Jesus knows your heart needs forgiveness. Jesus knows when you are forgiven, your heart will be comforted and you will enjoy peace, a peace that passeth all understanding. In fact, we use the expression, peace of mind. How you get there, Jesus? In sin, you cannot have this peace. It brings us to the last point in that this. Jesus knows your heart needs hope. There is hope for the people who dropped the stones and walked away. They didn't get stoned either. What's the hope for them? Let's not do that again. Let's not act evil. Let's not act wickedly. Let's not concoct plans to do other people harm to try to further a cause we have. Let's not do that. He knew how he knew. We don't know, but he knew. Let's learn from that. There's hope for them. Hopefully they did. There's hope for the woman. Hopefully she did do just as the Savior said. Hopefully she went and sinned no more. Lived a life that gave glory to God, remembering this day, and was hopeful. Jesus knows you need hope. Hope is such a blessing because of what hope does. Hope looks forward, not back. You see, that last point we were talking about is unforgiven sin. And unforgiven sin forces you to look backward at what you've done. That's what David is doing. Th- that, that's what happens in life. It ties you to your past. David is in his present writing about his past. I acknowledge my transgression. David's already been forgiven. My sin is ever before me. What sin, David? My past. That's what does. That's what it does. It, it actually robs you of your present. You can't enjoy your present because your past won't let you go. But not hope. When you are forgiven, hope changes that. Hope is a present blessing with future benefits. Hope never looks back. doesn't have to because the past has been forgiven. The conscience has been clean. The forgiveness has been accomplished, and with that comfort, you enjoy your present and you look forward to your future. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. How do you have life more abundantly now? You get forgiveness of sins by coming to Jesus, and now life is good. And what else do you get? You get hope because you get to look forward of going to heaven. Jesus gives you a future. A future hope because of what God did and what Jesus did. Jesus came to earth, John 1:14. He died for our sins, John 3:16. He rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, and now the Bible will use language that ties us to Jesus and our hope being tethered to him. That's how the Hebrew writer talks about it in Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. The Bible says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, you need to have some familiarity with the Old Testament because this idea of running for refuge would be a reference back to the six refuge cities. Three on each side of the river, where one who has shed innocent blood or shed blood and was unintentional innocently, he could run to the city of refuge and have refuge from the avenger of blood. Well, if you bring that language over to the New Testament, then we have shed Christ's blood, not innocently. God is the avenger of blood. It was his son. As a result of that, we are at odds with God, and should we reach eternity before having blood the blood of Christ cover us, we will be in an eternally bad state. And so, what the writer is saying is, we have run. When we run to Jesus, we run to refuge. Now there, in that refuge, he says, to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Now, the language goes further and says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into the veil. So, then we move from the refuge cities of hope to the veil in the temple, and the tabernacle. And he says, with regards to the veil, the one has entered. Verse—the very next verse says, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Jesus then has entered into the veil. That is, you had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place, separated by a veil. At his death, burial, and resurrection, the veil was rent. The access into the Holy of Holies was now open. Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies, heaven, and he then has tethered our souls to him and our hope is anchored in heaven. When you come to Jesus, you don't just, you get forgiveness so your past is gone. You get to enjoy the present and live it abundantly. And then you get a hope anchored to Jesus in eternity, provided by God who cannot lie. And Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has entered for us into the veil. Our hope, the anchor of our soul, tethered to Christ in heaven, Our lives are lived in by walking in the light, holding on to the line. You keep walking and you keep moving forward. Listen, friends, there's no way you can miss this. It's it's intended to be assurance. It's not like that person misses out, barely makes it. No, it's a hope in heaven. Peter would say it's reserved there for you. Jesus is the light. The light of the world, absolutely yes. Specifically to you, though, he is the light of your heart. And he knows exactly what you need. You need the knowledge of Jesus. He would say, my word is life and truth. You need the forgiveness of Jesus. Come to me, I will forgive you. You need the comfort that only Jesus can provide. In John 14, Jesus will say, Peace, I leave with you my peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And you need hope. If our world is lacking in anything, it is short on hope, but not Christians. We have an anchor beyond the veil a hope steadfast and secure in Jesus. Now, the Christian this morning, won't you become one? Peter would ask in chapter 6 of this book, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, we might ask you the same question. If not Jesus, then who? If not living for Jesus, then friends, then what? What? Come to Jesus by believing that he is the Son of God. Change your heart and your mind. Repent, the Bible says. Confess his name. Be immersed with water in water for the forgiveness of your sins, and let Jesus forgive you. Let Jesus wash away your past. Let Jesus silence and comfort the mind. Let Jesus give you the hope that endures. If you are his child and you've lived in a way that's not pleasing to him, if you have any need, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.